0: Hello everyone, welcome to the NAGEP Report. This is Aaron Berger, one of your co-hosts. Recently, I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Nireen McDonald and Dr. Jelaine Zenkelberger, both from Notre Dame University. Drs. McDonald and Zenkelberger talked with me about their efforts to gain insight from the data they collect from their newly admitted graduate students. They are getting a ton of useful information about why their students are choosing their institution and what is on their mind as they embark on their journey as a graduate student. I'm excited for you all to hear about their work and why we might consider this approach as we think about meeting the needs of our potential students. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nairi McDonald and Dr. Jolene Zankelberger. <music> This is the NAGAP Report, the official podcast of NAGAP, the Association for Graduate Enrollment Management. I am joined today by Dr. Norey McDonald, the Associate Dean of Graduate Enrollment Management. And her colleague, Dr. Jelaine Zenkelberger, uh, who's the program coordinator for graduate student life. Both of these individuals are coming to us from the University of Notre Dame. So thank you so much for joining us. We are going to be talking about basically utilizing data that we already likely have, that it's coming in from our admitted student population. So both of these individuals do a great job with the University of Notre Dame of finding out from their admitted students, you know, what made them choose their program. And they have a lot of great content uh, for us today. And so my first question is for Nore, can you, can you tell us how, how did this work come to be and why were you interested in pursuing it? Um,
1: I started in this role in 2009. And one of the first things I did was to meet and greet with separate populations of graduate students across the university. And in our conversations, I would ask them things like, why did you choose Notre Dame? How's your experience going? And When I asked those questions, there were some themes that seemed to pop up across all of the populations. I spoke to humanists, I spoke to social scientists, I spoke to engineers, I spoke to populations of just women, I spoke to diversity populations independently together as a group, I spoke to first year students, I spoke to fifth year students and everything in between. And so when I realized that in reviewing these notes that there were some themes, that were consistently a part of their decision making process, I thought it'd be a really good thing for us to try to figure out how we might capture that information in the application process. So we asked the question in the application phase you know, how important are these 11 things to you? And then we asked the question again for the students that we choose to admit and who will decide to come or not come to Notre Dame, the same 11 questions. And then we go into a deeper level of understanding about that, and we asked them, in addition to how important are these 11 things, we asked them, how are we doing in comparison to the other places you may have gotten admitted to? And so the 11 things that came up as a theme was everything from diversity to professional development offerings, to financial support for the university, to career placement, these students thinking about their future career aspirations. And so it just seemed like the natural thing to do to try to figure out how we might quantify this information as we assess what we might do next, So I think we have been doing this uh, since 2011. I think that's the first year, fall 2011 data set is probably the first year we have. But I think the presentation we made, NAGAP, covered 2016 through uh, fall of 2022
0: admins, That's quite some time. My next question is for Jalene. Can you take us through how this is executed, especially considering uh, we're talking with a bunch of graduate enrollment management professionals. So if we want to get into a little bit into the weeds here, I think we can, right? So uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how you go about this?
2: Yeah, sure. We ask these questions first at the end of the application. So why they applied to nerding name to begin with. The questions at the end of the application are a little less in multifaceted as the reply to offer ones that I'll talk about in a second, but one thing to note that these questions are never required to be answered. So, the numbers that will that you might see if you were looking at a report aren't going to be the exact same numbers as the amount of students who applied. But I will say we do have a high rate of response from applicants at both stages of when we ask these questions. So that's really promising. We then ask the questions again at the point that the students receive and are responding to their offer of admission. So when we send them, hey, you have been accepted to Notre Dame, and we ask them if they want to attend or accept our offer or not, we ask the questions again. And these cover 11 factors that Narey already pointed out. Some of the main concepts, financial support, department sizes, the fit in their community, and other aspects like that. And we ask about these 11 factors in two ways. First, we ask how important the factor was in their decision to attend or not attend Notre Dame. Because both are important for us to understand. And second, we ask how they think Notre Dame did performance wise on these factors. So they can either say that Notre Dame did better in their assessment than other schools, or that their other school options did better, or that everyone was kind of similar. So, for instance, financial support, they might say Notre Dame did better, reputation, other school potentially or they both did similar. So that's the second way we look at those factors. And these set of questions, the ones at reply to offer are the ones that we used for this specific analysis, mainly so that we can really look at the difference between those who accepted our offer and those who declined it. Because especially with the people who decline, it's important for us to understand, okay, what are their assessment of Notre Dame and how can we potentially curve the way that we do recruitment and materials or just how we talk about Notre Dame and talk about our grad programs and what might be missing in the messaging that we're sending out?
0: Well, what I'm hearing from that as well, too, was was also tied at the beginning, talking about the importance of timing. Uh, you know, when does this go out? When to when is it? most beneficial to capture this in- information when do you have a likelihood that people will actually take the time to fill it out? <laughs> um, and so so I, I, I think we all know as admissions professionals, whether it's first year transfer, any other population, but especially graduate, the importance of timing in this. So is there a thought about intentionality of when you ask these questions? Is there a better time to do it? I assume not, you've, all, you've been doing this for quite some time, but uh, can you take us through some of what that might look like? Have you all thought about asking these questions at different times during the cycle?
2: Yeah, so uh, one thing that we didn't do that kind of relates to timing, that it, it might be interesting to look at a comparison between those questions we ask at application time and when they're accepting or declining our offer. Because like you said, timing matters. So for instance, when you're applying to universities, your understanding of what you're looking for or what universities are offering is going to be a lot different than after you're receiving an offer from them. And presumably have been talking a lot more to recruiters and current students and doing visit weekends and things like that at the various universities. So it'd be interesting to maybe look at how those might shift between application time and when they receive their offer. I think we chose these times because this is when they have like we have their attention. so, they're already filling out an application. So answering a couple more questions probably doesn't. it's a drop in the bucket for how many questions you have to answer on an application sometimes. And when they're accepting or declining your offer again, they need to tell us if they're coming or not. So it's another opportunity for us to kind of utilize that time when we're asking them questions to kind of assess why they're making that decision. I would imagine that potentially it would be interesting to ask them upon arrival, but I, it would be hard to figure out how to best give that assessment to them, especially when they're just starting their program. We do, although in a way, ask similar questions throughout their time at our university. Every three years, our Office of Graduate Student Life, we do a three every three years, we do a survey about general student well-being, and it it touches on a lot of the same factors that we touch on in our um, reply to offer form. Although the questions aren't exactly the same, they're close enough and hitting the same, like similar enough uh, topics that good enough comparisons could be made. However, it would be interesting to completely verbatim restate those questions within the grad life survey so that we could potentially see like three years into their program, how, like, how has the importance and and performance of community and fit financial support, et cetera, uh, changed in their perception. So,
1: yeah. So we, we have done this, but we haven't done it in a survey format. And we haven't focused on the current student population or those who accepted our offer and those who declined. What we do on a, every two to three year cycle is we randomly select a group of declines who declined our offer three years ago share the information with them about how they responded to the offer of admission and ask them for a little more clarity, right? And so I would literally get on the phone and say, is this a good time? They would agree to speak with me. And then they would essentially, after reviewing what they said, share with me their thoughts. And I would write down a few key themes or ideas just to see if what they were saying at that time when they were admitted and responding to our offer of admission and saying no, is that still what they're thinking today, right? Wherever it is that they are. Remarkably, I don't remember any questions where the student was far off the mark five years later or three years later, but it is really It's not a survey in the format for which this is. That's really more about me trying to make sure that we are asking the right questions and getting what I think is accurate information when we initially get it. It would be interesting to go to our current student population and say, you know, you remember when you said these things? Are they still in line? Your answers, are they still in line? And just random selection and say, you know, what do you think? You've been here now three years. Have we met your expectations? Are are we in line where you think we should be? I think the most interesting population is probably not the current student population. It's probably the alumni population that's four or five years out, right? Because I think that that's the group of people who are really automatically engaged in using the things or the additional skills they think they selected or picked up while they were here. So if I were to do it for a population, I probably would want to aim at an alumni population five years out.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting to pull in that sort of that outcomes piece, right? Did we deliver what you expected and what what you thought you needed at the time? So I want, I want to talk about the instrument itself. And, and not only that, but I want to talk about the data that comes from it. Uh, Jelene, I think Nure talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but What are you hearing? What are the themes?
2: So not surprisingly, the most uh, significant differences that we saw in the results of this analysis was between students who accepted our offer and students who don't. We also saw that some of our students who we flagged as or who we gave internal fellowships to, so fellowships from Notre Dame, They also had some differences in their outcomes, but I think the most interesting thing and most useful in a way is the students who did and did not accept our offer. Interestingly, there weren't any statistically significant uh, differences with any of our demographic groups. There were some trends that might be interesting to look at further, but primarily with demographics groups, the most notable difference we saw was with international applicants who were much more likely to note that community fit was an important factor in their decision, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're coming from a completely different country to a new place. And so finding a community to attach themselves to when they're leaving their own, obviously is super important. So what we saw with the students who accepted our offer the factors that they noted was most important in their decision were things like reputation, financial support, community fit, and program requirements, and that specifically in that order, whereas decliners, had a they had a pretty similar top four. So they had community fit, so that's the same reputation. The difference was in career placement, they put that in their top four instead of program requirements. And they also noted financial support as being important factors. So again, fairly similar, except for those flip with uh, program requirements and career placement. Then when we look closer at especially those four factors at ND performance in those areas, we see a lot of differences in how they viewed Notre Dame's performance on those factors. So for instance, in reputation, which was important for both uh, types of uh, accepted students, we saw that 70% of students who accepted our offer said that Notre Dame did better, whereas those who declined our offer were about 50% saying that the other options that they had did better and Notre Dame was only better in 15% of the cases. Now, obviously this isn't that surprising given their resulting decisions. Like if you don't think Notre Dame has a higher reputation, then you're probably not gonna accept our offer, but we can use this data and other points of data from the application. So that would be what programs they're applying to, what like backgrounds they have in terms of where they're coming from, Uh, to better understand the potential reasons that they're seeing our reputation as lower if they're declining our offer. So, for instance, maybe we're not doing a good enough job talking about how well our programs are doing. And so the way that we can respond to that is having our programs more involved in the recruitment process. We saw similar things with all the other factors where we saw commonalities in importance. But I think the most interesting thing to look at was that career placement factor, which was mo- only noted as one of the most important factors for those who declined our offer. So we see that there was an equal amount of students who declined our offer said that other schools did better at this factor or that Neurative did equally well. So they had an equally likely chance that they're going to say we're just as good as everyone else at career placement or that other schools did better. So we're not too far off the mark to potentially like move the bar to Eddie's favor there. But that's interesting because we actually do have a fairly good career placement rate at our school. So this gave us a clear goal to do a better job at highlighting our successes here and to utilize our partners like our career center to take the numbers and show it to those students that are interested in our school. So yeah, uh, and other than that, a lot of other trends that we started digging into college backgrounds. So for instance, our global affairs students and our arts and letters students were significantly more likely to see to, to find that community fit were more important than our science and engineering students. So maybe we need to create marketing materials, that lean towards that if they're interested in our arts and letters programs and things like that.
1: A few weeks ago, I was in a conversation with someone on campus and we were talking about whether or not we could look at this data over time to see if there are any shifts in the trends. And does that tell us anything about which direction we are moving in? So as I talk to the departments and programs for whom this this information is being generated, one of the conversations or one of the next goals for my office is to begin to look at this data longitudinally and to see if now that we've got a decade worth, right, if there are shifts, and and if they are, we ought to be able to bring them down to the programmatic student level, right? So if we could define what it's like for engineering students who were responding to these 12 questions in 2012, and compare that to how it has changed over time, I, I think that's one of the things I want to analyze specifically because I think that's what the departments and programs are thinking about this data.
0: I think you both bring up really good points um, tied to how that data can change at the programmatic level, right? Like, so different colleges, different schools, you know, having different sort of philosophies in terms of the way, uh, whether it's a more professional uh, type of program versus a more what you might refer to as a traditional approach uh, uh, or traditional program versus online programming. Versus. So when you start changing the type of program, that, that could really could definitely see how that would have an effect. I'm also thinking again, back to timing. and You were just mentioning Ray, about the sort of the taking a more longitudinal approach. And I think there's been some demarcations here in recent history Tied to graduate uh, recruitment, I think, of uh, the recession in 2008, and then now I'm thinking COVID, right? So so have you seen in, in recent years those changes over time, especially maybe with COVID in mind, uh, some of those shifts? Or do things get more emphasized as opposed to as opposed to not?
2: Yeah. So in our initial anal- analysis, we didn't really focus on those trends like the longitudinal data, but like Naray said, that's a next step for us for sure, especially if we want to look at <clears throat> classes pre and post those kind of landmark events. <laughs> so for instance, I mean, at this point, we can just kind of make a assumptions about the data are based on what we're seeing in other sources of data, how this might change. So I would imagine, uh, based on the results that we saw with, for instance, I mentioned our grad life survey, which right now we actually are doing that comparison of pre-post-COVID, that many students who are currently at Notre Dame put more stock in those community and fit kind of Factors within their graduate student life now versus the last time that we ran the survey, which was in 2019. So, pre COVID. So, I could see that moving in the same direction for prospective students. So, students that are maybe not only choosing grad schools for a community, but definitely using that as a factor that's important for them to make sure that they have a community where wherever they're going next in their academic career. Um, I could also see more emphasis on diversity and inclusion factors given recent events and just what we see in other points of data, both within and without uh, and outside of the university. So yeah, do you have anything to add, Nare?
1: Well, I I think I have a couple of things. When When I think about COVID, I think about an event that exposed the worst parts For a student who struggled, it made everything harder and much more significant, right? And so if you were on the border, it more likely pushed you over the line or brought you a lot closer. So our capacity to pay attention to student needs and to be aware of the gap between what we think a student should have and what the student actually needs I think there are some things about this survey that highlight that especially if we tie it to other information within the application so um for example i I think we saw a lot more requests for students from students who needed financial support to get to campus and by that i mean the students simply did not have the money for the plane ticket or the car ride or to set up their initial apartment and so when we see the response rate of the importance of our financial support, that's what the student can see coming to him or her at the end, at the beginning of their academic career at Notre Dame. But they still need to make that bridge, make a bridge to get them to, to here. So I think that that's one of the things that it exposed for me. I, didn't, I don't think pre-COVID I was paying enough attention to that initial need, that need that they have to just start up before they actually even physically arrive. I remember one student telling me that he essentially needed to buy ketchup, mayonnaise, and mustard all at the same time. And he'd only do that once, right? The next time he might need ketchup, but he probably wouldn't need both mayonnaise and mustard. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it, right? So I I think that's what COVID did. And when I think about reanalyzing this data or going back to analyze it, one of the things we have to do is we do have to demarcate the COVID years, right, to see if there is anything specifically unique to those years. And, and when we initially made the presentation, we were in COVID and that seemed like normal. So there was no need to remove it or do anything special around it. So I, I think this is a good time to go back to it and look again.
0: Thank you for that. Jelaine, the question I wanted to ask you, um, tied specifically to recruitment, we have all this data, so, so what, what now? What do you take with this data that's actionable? We have these themes. How do you apply those to, to recruiting students?
2: Yeah, yeah, and so what is always the important question. I love doing data stuff, but if I'm not doing anything with it, it's it's my least favorite. So So, love that question. So, yeah, so I've kind of touched on this a little bit in my previous answers, but for one thing, I think we focused a lot more on connecting applicants to current students on campus. We've been doing that in the past, but I think COVID kind of, I mean, COVID was a ter- is a terrible thing and like not great. But the thing that came out of it was the more use of virtual like uh, video phone calls. I mean, obviously it existed. We had Skype, but now like setting up a Zoom call is definitely much more top of the mind for connecting students. So I think in the past couple of years, that's definitely grown for us, which helps them, prospective students better learn about the current campus community that we have and how it affects day-to-day lives of grad students, but also hearing straight from the horse's mouth, like what it's like to be a grad student here. Also reaching out to appropriate partners based on a result. So I kind of mentioned this, I spoke last year with our career services people for our grad career center to kind of talk to them about more up-to-date numbers on our career placement, because that was an important factor, especially for those students who declined our offer. So we needed to Better tell the story of where our grad students end up, and they actually were doing like a similar project of updating their placement records. Because one thing that they always come come across problem a problem that they come across a lot is when students graduate, they graduate and they leave, and they don't tell us where they're going. So they're creating a better system of following up with grad students after they have, after they graduate and seeing where they ended up and so that we can have better accurate numbers of where our students end up after they graduate, which is important for us to share as recruiters. Further, we started working on a campaign of informational emails to highlight the various important factors that applicants noted Each one of these emails give them more information that hopefully get them to say yes. So these emails consist of five emails that follow, or sorry, four emails that follow their first acceptance letter email. So once they hit their, get their acceptance letter, these emails proceed it, I think once a week afterwards. So for instance, we hit we had one uh, email. Their first email was professional development information and resources to hit that career placement point. We sent them an email about grants and fellowships. We have a really great grants and fellowships office here at Notre Dame, and that kind of hits on the financial support element our a grad student life email for community and fit, and also a housing email. I mean, to be honest, that's just practical It's the last email and it's like, hey, by the way, don't forget you have to live somewhere. (laughs) So that was just a practical aspect and also something that a lot of our prospective students really value getting information about. So we added that. We also did a more assertive push to departments both last year and this year uh, to create mailings for both prospective students and admitted students. To better address their unique characteristics and hopefully address that specifically that reputation piece, because reputation really comes from the department when you hit grad school. And yeah, so we we got a buy-in from quite a few departments over this past summer to really get them to have these emails ready to go and automated that we'll send out to prospective students and admitted students. Because we are a centralized recruitment system. So we recruit for the grad school, not specific departments. I was so, going to
0: ask about that, how that yeah. was set up and the lift involved. And um, exactly. I could imagine with all the programs you likely have yeah, getting that all coordinated.
2: Yeah. So, so it was really important that we get this buy-in from departments because John, my, uh, the recruitment counterpart that I had um, and myself while we technically focused on like arts and letters or engineering or science there's only so much that we can know about each department are um, we are not computers and <laughs> um, I only know so much about the chemistry department I can tell you that it exists and that it's pretty good but I don't I don't know anything about chemistry but if you ask me about our psych department, I could tell you anything at all. <laughs> so I
0: feel like you're speaking to a lot of graduate <laughs> enrollment professionals who are empathizing all over, <laughs> know a lot about and know a little about a lot of different programs, right? So exactly. Yeah.
2: So yeah. getting that department buy-in for those informational pieces was super important.
1: So I think when I think back to the original COVID summer, summer of 2020 one of the things that we recognized was happening was that we were much more disconnected from the kids or students we were trying to enroll for the summer and the fall. In response, we created a bunch of Zoom sessions that covered the topics that essentially are these 11 items that we we talked about earlier and so we had a zoom session that highlighted the office of grants and fellowships at notre dame which is a unique feature here right and that session was extremely well attended we had a session with all of the associate deans in the graduate school on uh, well the executive leadership team in the graduate school at the time offering students who were either admitted or had already accepted the offer an opportunity to talk to us and ask us questions about the graduate student process and, pro- and procedures And just generally graduate student life at large. We had graduate career services do one. We had one on resources. I don't think that the combination of these 11 factors, knowing that these were really important and knowing how valuable they were in the decision-making process and the necessities that were created out of COVID, I couldn't talk to you directly, literally meant that we created this new format. We call them fireside chats or something like that, right? And so literally you could come as an admitted student, you would get an invite to this fireside chat. You could even listen to the recording later if that is what you wanted to do. I think when when we initially built them, I thought that they were going to drive confirmation, right, people accepting our offer. I think what it did is told me who was most into our offer to begin with, right? Who was really taking us seriously. Attendance at that event, or at any of those events, they more likely turned into confirmed. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know if if that was the right thing to do. But I think every year since then, we've done something very much in that vein. So we've got this email chain that she spoke about earlier. But in a, in addition, we also have these short one hour long sessions that we set up and invite continuing students to, or in sorry incoming students to come and, and visit. I think the combination of the two. Is probably the one of the most significant things we did in the last year to recognize that, you know, if this data is as important as we say it is, that we should be using it at multiple stages in the process. I think one of the things we want to do next summer is work more closely with our partners on campus to turn these little Zoom sessions that we do as a fireside chat for any admitted student into a longer session that a student could engage with graduate career services about over the summer, right? Before they start their fall program to, to be able to access and connect with the university at an earlier stage, we can do we can do that. I, I think that is one of the things I'm looking forward to. I, I think this trend now, as we use this data more and more, we're gonna be moving this more and more into the beginning of fall semester.
0: I, I love what you're saying about, you know, harnessing those sessions, you know, this data, Really, the powers and the relevance of it, right, is is developing relevant content that students are telling you they want to know more about, uh, and so being able to deliver that, and then also having access to the recording. We just did a previous podcast on uh, the power of video, and one of those benefits, right, is the on-demand nature of it. Uh, so if somebody's not able to attend the live version, but still really wants to hear about that resource having the ability to take advantage of that is super impactful. And then Nareh, you were talking about uh, sort of the next iteration, the next push, you know, where where do you go from here? I want to get Jelaine's thoughts on that as well. You know, you have this information, you have these things that are already uh, in practice. Where do you think the next steps of this, besides uh, what Nareh has already said, where do you think that, that takes you?
2: I mean, like you said, narrate touched on a lot of it. I think looking at trend analyses is great now that we have a good chunk of years of data. So, yeah, I think like continuing to ask these questions as they are is probably the best plan as far as like utilizing the survey, because it does make it easier moving forward to look at those trends if we're asking the same questions year after year. Um, obviously, I think. It makes a lot of sense evolving wise to add, potentially adding other items. I don't think we should change the items we have, but potentially if we move forward in the future and we find that there's another factor that a lot of students are leaning on in their decisions, those could definitely be added and potentially things being subtracted. I I don't, I can't imagine which factor would be, but Those are the kind of things that I could see this evolving into. And finally, we we kind of talked about this throughout, but asking these questions throughout their time in grad school, and especially potentially asking them in some sort of exit survey, which not only would benefit us in the grad school, but also benefit people in career services or other uh, student services offices on campus to see how they did during the student's time here, where they're going next. And also, as Narei said, the interesting points of data a lot of times are alumni and getting them just as they turn into alumni, they have fresh perspective of how their grad student experience went, what worked, what didn't work, what they valued at the beginning and how that changed at the end is a really interesting and cool perspective that could affect the way that we formulate recruitment plans and also student services plans. Like a lot of this recruitment data is super important, too, for the rest of our partners on campus. So looking at how that changed over time throughout their time at our university, I think is something definitely to be looked at.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so my last question for for the both of you. You've been doing this for a minute now. What would you say to the, the person, the graduate enrollment professional who wants to get this going at their institution? They're considering doing something like this. Would you have any words of advice or warning, if you will?
2: I'm going to let Narae start
1: since she's the one that started this. I would say Nike said it best. Just do it. There you I, go. Um I, I think when we ask the questions is incredibly important, right? They are making the decision, they're going to tell us yes or no in that reply form. And so asking them, you know, how are you making this decision? What's important at that time? I think you just do it. I think you decide, you have these conversations very much in the vein that I had. And it's really just an open forum. Invite them to talk, see what they share, three or four or five of them. Do it ten times. And then, and then decide what are the 11, 12, 15, five factors you want to assess, if any. I'm not sure. I think ours is a really good subset. I'm not 100% sure that the 11 items that I tracked from our incoming students and current students is the right answer for everyone. But I, 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 think, they should, I think that people should just do this
2: yeah and I would build off of that so I I came in uh, when I came into my role in the recruitment office last uh, about a year and a half ago, I was working with this data that already existed so if you're coming in in the same way I did you want to make sure that you really understand where this data came from at the start so why for instance understanding asking the Ray like, why did we make this and what the purpose was to begin with? Because you definitely don't want to use data in a way that it probably wasn't proposed to do. I mean, there's definitely ways to like manipulate data to fit what you're wanting, but making sure that you completely understand why this data was originally being collected and things like that. So that's a great way to look at things. I also, as a data person, don't just stop by looking at percentages. Bear in mind that some populations are smaller than others. So 5% in 5,000 is a lot different than 5% of 10. So making sure that you really look at like what those percentages mean in terms of population size. And also if you work on a campus with good statistical help center or someone in your office that does data analysis strategies themselves, or you do them, Uh, Don't be afraid to use them so you can really look at what this data is showing and also running comparisons in a statistically sound way so that you can look at, like, okay, so we saw 5% here and 5% there. What does that mean when we compare them across those two populations? And also, like, break down your data in as many ways as you can think of, whether that's demographics, which can tell a lot of stories. So, like, difference between male and female, different races, ethnicities, but also look at degree type, look at the, what kinds of colleges these students came from, if they received a fellowship, internal, external, break them down in a lot of different ways, because that can really tell you a lot about strategies for getting to different types of populations. For instance, we found very different results between generally like the the general admitted student body. So all of our students we admitted versus the students that were coming in with fellowships. And that can lend itself to creating recruitment strategies that give you those high performance students potentially coming in. So break down your data. It can show you a lot of different results and important stuff.
0: Well, I just want to take the time to say thank you to both of you. We all know what graduate enrollment management, what life in general is like for higher ed professionals in the fall. We know that it is super busy. So both of you carving the time out of your day to to be with the NAGAP report really means a lot. And I I just want to thank you. So to all the uh, listeners out there, thank you for joining the NAGAP report on behalf of uh, Dr. Jelaine Zinkelberger and Dr. Noreen McDonald. Uh, both coming to us from the University of Notre Dame. This is Aaron Berger signing off. Thank you so much for joining.